Welcome to the Black Sparrow Media Internet Broadcast Network. And welcome. You have tuned in to episode number 199 of Linux in the Ham Shack. And we're recording this on the first day of autumn in 2017. And uh, I am your host, Russ K5TUX. And across from me is W5MOO. That's Cheryl. Hello, everyone. And from cold, almost freezing rain, Montana, we have Bill in E4RD. Good evening, everybody. So Bill's been drinking for charity, and I've just been playing drinking, so this should be a good show. Oh, of course. I don't have a drink. <laughs> you don't have a drink? Well, there's a bottle of bourbon right there. You can drink some of that. Uh, no? Yeah, maybe. It, it hasn't been touched. <laughs> I, ha- I have not touched it yet. It's a, it's brand new. Have you so, even tasted it yet? I have not. Wow. That's for later. I see. So, so moving on, I guess we'll talk about some Linux and ham radio type stuff, since that's kind of what we do here. And uh, we'll go with our amateur radio segment for the first one here and we'll talk about some web receivers web receivers are real popular now there's been explosive growth in this field uh, places like websdr.org and sdr.hu exist some folks have been using those for a long time to receive their size of compromised stations so if you happen to live in uh, hoa controlled neighborhoods if you do i pity you uh, and you can sometimes only have antenna systems that receive electrical noise of your neighbors and not like actual radio signals. Uh, but with tools like RBN, you're getting out just fine. So you can use these receivers as a good substitute for receiving on your actual rig. Uh, there's some built-in delay with decoding and transporting that audio. Uh, so, you know, using digital modes could be problematic, but this is a great idea for uh, being able to hear signals, uh, particularly ones that you can't pick up in your own QTH. I thought about this myself using, uh, you know, the, the web SDRs as kind of like a secondary receiver, you know, once in a while just to get like maybe almost like a diversity receiver, <laughs> you know, because right. you can hear what you can hear. But once in a while, other people can hear you that you can't hear. And it's interesting to uh, use those tools to expose the signals that you can't hear and uh, I hadn't really thought about people using that as their primary reception. And apparently, according to some of the comments in this particular article that we link from Reddit, people are using it as their primary receiver and basically just transmitting from their rigs. So uh, I just I thought it was an interesting use case for them with the availability of uh, remote uh, systems that you can rent and stuff like that. Uh, I thought this was a, an interesting uh, an interesting use case for uh, for the free. Uh, web receivers. It is an interesting use case, and as long as you're transmitting and your control operator and all of the things as far as pertaining to the rules of Part 97 for your outgoing signal, then I guess it doesn't really matter how you hear the inbound one. Right, yeah, because I mean, you know, you're only, the only rules for are for transmitting. You know, there's rules for RF, there's rules for frequency, but when it comes to reception, you know, the reception is free. It's it's a general usage thing. So, so I don't think it really falls under any particular rule. And uh, I've never seen any case where um, like this is, you know, any contacts were negated by using some sort of secondary receiver. Presuming you can hear the signal at all, regardless of how you hear it. Yeah, it's kind of neat. I like it. Yeah. All right, very good. And so you put in a story here about uh, Joda, and that you know, Boy Scouts are your thing, so we'll let you cover it. Yeah, jamboree on the air and jamboree on the internet. It's that time of year again where we're 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 pushing into uh, jamboree on the air season. It's uh, next month. We're one month away from this is the world's largest scouting activity. And this is run by the World Scouting Organization. This is not run by North America. It's not run by the Boy Scouts of America. It's run by the World Scouting Organization, which is kind of like the parent organization to all these other scouting programs throughout the world. And this is the 60th anniversary of the Jamboree on the Air, where scouts from around the world attempt to contact each other via amateur radio. Um, CQ Jamboree, CQ Jota will be heard on the HF bands, D-Star, DMR, Echolink, and more. If you haven't already made plans to participate in Joda with a scouting group or want to participate, please take some time to visit the register station list on the scout.org website 
And we have the link in the show notes, but you can easily, you know, search that up real quick. And this is a great opportunity. Uh, we were talking, I was talking to one of the uh, guys in the chat room uh, earlier today about it. And uh, he's uh, still trying to get licensed. He just got his HT so he can start listening to the repeater. And I said, hey, you know, you might want to look in your area to see if there's any jamboree on the air. He's got a, he's got a six-year-old. And, uh, you know, that's almost the right age to kind of begin Cub Scouting and stuff like that. And if you, you know, he's like, I want to get my son kind of involved in this whole amateur radio thing as well, as soon as I have time to get licensed. And this is a great activity to kind of mix that and kind of uh, get into uh, radio scouting as kind of a side thing. Simultaneously, also with Joda, you know, Jamboree on the Air, we always talk about Jamboree on the Air because, you know, we're, we're amateur radio people. There's also the Jamboree on the Internet, and this is the 21st anniversary of the Jamboree on the Internet, of course, because, you know, how many years has the Internet been around? Uh, you know, longer than most millennials. But uh, the 21st running of Jamboree on the Internet is around. Uh, this all kind of kind of surfaces and uh, surrounds the scoutlink.net services that they provide. Of uh, They have an IRC server, which I'm on and in all the channels over there. Um, they have a TeamSpeak server. And they're also getting scouts on Skype and, you know, other ways of getting scouts to talk to each other via the Internet without any amateur radio stuff. Lastly, the, uh, last year, ICOM uh, gave away a prize to uh, one lucky amateur radio station that uh, registered and then turned in a station report at the end of the event. And the same is true as this year. I think last year they gave away a, uh, a D-Star HT. And I don't have the exact details, but I, I think it's a, a D-Star mobile unit. So it's either the uh, 4,100 or the 5,100. But Icon America is sponsoring a prize for um, a radio station, an amateur radio station that registers and sends in a report at the end of the event. So make sure you do that if you're going to go ahead and uh, sponsor an event or be part of an event. Um, they, they did that last year, and it was great. So uh, we have a couple links in the show notes. Uh, of course, you can go on k2bsa.net, and they have uh, all the links for Jamboree on the Air, event planning, and station registration, and and all those other things, you know. And, of course, you don't have to be a scout to get involved, because once they get on the air, they like to make contacts. So That's right. All right, so moving on, we're going to talk about the FCC. We've uh, mentioned this a little bit before and talked about some uh, regulations that they were going to actually open up a couple of bands, and apparently this has actually happened. Uh, they've announced, they being the FCC, that the Office of Management and Budget has approved for three years uh, the information collection requirement of the commission's March 29th report and order, which we did talk about, uh, that spelled out the amateur radio service rules for the two new bands. This is 630 meters and 2200 meters. Notice of the action appears in today's edition of the Federal Register. Uh, but before using either band, stations must notify the Utilities Technology Council, UTC, not to be confused with the time zone, uh, formerly the Utilities Telecom Council, that they plan to do so. And if the UTC does not respond within 30 days then you may go ahead and transmit. So uh, this actually came from the ARRL. But the big deal is, is that you cannot, you cannot use this as a mobile station, even though that would be ridiculously stupid. Um, you have to be a fixed station. And the registration process basically takes into account where your antenna, your fixed antenna location will be. So, uh, you know, that all that information has to be in there. I don't think anybody would do this mobile because you'd have to have, you know, <laughs> a huge antenna, a huge, it'd be a bigly antenna, the bigliest antenna you've ever seen uh, on your car. So don't do it. Yeah, it has to be a fixed antenna, fixed location. Uh, you're not going to set up portable doing this somewhere, you know, not in a park or anything else like that. So, uh, yeah, you're going to be registering if you're going to have this at your house or at a fixed location, club location, what have you. It's interesting. I, I did a little listening on the band when they were doing all those whisper tests and stuff like that. And it, 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 it is interesting to see the propagation on it. You know, it, it's, it's much like a 160, except for a little shorter. All right. Very good. And yes, I mean, you can make an antenna electrically resonant on certain bands uh, to make them physically shorter. Uh, but the more you do that, of course, the less efficient they become and stuff. And when you're talking about antennas that would normally be a dipole of 1,100 meters on a side, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. And as Jay Lindsay says, yeah, that is not a uh, a drive-through uh, compatible antenna. <laughs> no, absolutely. I'm going to be going through the McDonald's and uh, <laughs> getting through the order window. 
Right. So that's our amateur radio stuff for tonight. So let's move on to some open source. And the first one is an interesting one. It's a YouTube video that was put out by former member of the Jupiter Broadcasting Network, Brian Lunduke, and he's off kind of doing his own thing now. Uh, but he talked about putting your money where your mouth is. Jim Zemlin is the executive director of the Linux Foundation. And uh, he was at a conference and declared that 2017 is to be the year of the Linux desktop, just like every year is. I've heard that for at least the last five years. So, um, But he did so while running a Mac. Uh, he was uh, doing a presentation, and he was brought up, uh, what is that, notes or something like that? What are they called? <laughs> the Mac uh, PowerPoint application. And uh, this is like uh, not the very first time that he's been caught using a Mac. I think uh, uh, someone had retweeted uh, a tweet uh, from himself when he was on the plane with uh, Jim Zemlin back in 2013 when he was headed to a conference again with a Mac. I just thought that was kind of funny, uh, not only because yeah, it's kind of funny, <laughs> but it, it hits close to home, right? You know, knowing that, you know, not every episode that, that we record here is done from my, my Linux machine. In fact, you know, you know, being completely honest today, it's actually from uh, my Mac mini <laughs> that I resurrected from its grave. So today I'm on the Mac Mini. I'm not always consistent because it really depends on how I'm setting up my stuff. We're not the CEO of the Linux Foundation, <laughs> but we do advocate Linux for the Hamjack. And I thought, you know, do, do you know, do we have some moral obligation that uh, we have to do everything in Linux, or is anybody like that advocates for a specific thing have to do 100, percent you know, Linux or you know, freedom and open source software? I had a couple of thoughts about this after I was watching Lunduke's video. The first thing that struck me is he made reference several times, I believe, to the fact that Zemlin never used Linux. And I'm not sure that he can actually know that. Now, clearly, he doesn't use Linux when he's up doing you know presentations at conferences. But can Lunduke actually say that Zemlin never, ever uses Linux? I find it hard to believe that he never touches it. If it is true that Zemlin never uses Linux, then yes, that is a poor indicator of his commitment to the thing that he espouses so much in the organization that he is the head of. The other thing I thought of was, I, I've mentioned on the show many times that the recording and the streaming that we I, I use sort of a hodgepodge of equipment to do this program, and part of that hodgepodge includes a Mac Mini. That's the thing that I'm actually recording the show on right now and doing the stream client with and terminating the Hangout connection. All of that could be done with Linux, but the failure there is not Linux. The failure is me and my lack of time to learn the steps necessary to actually get all that stuff to work. I think I've made it clear over the years that we've been doing this program that I've been trying to rectify that situation, and my sincere hope is that because this show and me personally advocate Linux, that I should be using Linux all the time to be doing this program. That being said, I still use Linux to do certain parts of the show, like, uh, for example, edit it. And the server that receives the stream and distributes it to the internet is also Linux. So, I mean, a fair amount of the procedure and a fair amount of what you actually hear is Linux. But again, I'm, I'm hoping to rectify that thing. And again, I'm not the head of the Linux Foundation. So I think it's... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, that was my thing. I was like, you know, you know, yeah, I use I use whatever I I happen to feel like using. You know, at least from my end, it doesn't it doesn't terribly matter. I need something that works with a microphone and the internet. So, right, <laughs> I don't always have uh, my Linux box uh, uh, running right in front of me. Although uh, I normally do, but right now I'm tearing apart the shack, so I don't happen to have my Linux box. I have a temporary Linux box that uh, is running soulless just kind of uh, specking out what I'm going to put on my um, my final system for the for the Hamshack box. Um, but yeah, it's like I don't feel obligated only because, you know, in, in my line of work as well, I have to use everything. You know, there's not a not a single piece of anything I can say, well, I can only use this to do what I do. And uh, if I find it nice to have a, a variety of tools available to me. So since I have them available, I'm going to use them for just about everything else I do. I don't feel obligated to use use Linux for 100% of everything I do. I don't, I'd like to. I would, I would <laughs> like to as well, but I don't feel obligated to do that either because I have to use Windows and I have to use Mac OS for other things. 
I like to think that I'm probably 95 or higher percent Linux usage, both at work and at home. But sometimes it just fills in the gaps when my shortcomings of uh, both time and experience don't allow me to use Linux for all the things I'd like to do. I just uh, blame it on Jack. <laughs> well, we, we can <laughs> do Jack's that, fault. sure. Right. <laughs> I don't think anyone would call me hypocritical because I use enough Linux, more than enough, I would say, to be a proper advocate. I mean, you won't catch me using HRD on anything. I can tell you that. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. I only did it the once. I won't even test it. Okay. (laughs) Well, I I will test it just so I can report upon it. But that's the only reason because I would never use it. Yes. I I haven't known to use N1MM plus, but uh, hey, you know, who hasn't? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> it's great. Okay, let's move on. <laughs> yeah, let's move on to the EFF resigning from the W3C over DRM concerns. In an open letter to the W3C director, CEO, team, and membership, the EFF lays out their case for resigning over the W3C's growing support for enforceable DRM. Uh, quote, today the W3C bequeaths an illegally unauditable attack surface to browsers used by billions of people. They give media companies the power to sue or intimidate away those who might repurpose video for people with disabilities. They side against the archivists who are scrambling to preserve the public record of our era. The W3C process has been abused by companies that made their fortunes by upsetting the established order. And now, thanks to EME, they'll be able to ensure no one ever subjects them to the same innovative pressures. You know, this is kind of good and bad at the same time because EME, which is not Earth, Moon, Earth, but actually the uh, the name for the uh, DRM for video and um, media, I guess, is more of a standard for for that you know digital rights management. Instead of using proprietary digital rights management, they're trying to make a standard for that. But of course, the EFF is against all DRM. You know, I see their point because, you know, pretty much, you know, they're just like, you know, Jim Zimlin, right? They have to be 100% one way or the other. They can't uh, they can't go wishy-washy and stuff like that. They can't be, uh, you know, helping the content protectors to, con- to protect their content and their uh, their their IP and their their money and, you know, stuff like that. And in the same hand, block people or block uh, archive.org or, <laughs> you know, some other third party from being able to, uh, at, well, what would now be considered illegally copying something and preserving it with I'm, I'm doing air quotes in my uh, garage here, air quotes, preserving it, <laughs> <laughs> which, you know. There's some legitimacy to that, maybe. Yeah, I don't know. It's kind of like they had to draw the line in the sand, and uh, it obviously broke the relationship between the EFF and the W3C. What it really means, I don't know. I, I can't. I can't necessarily agree one way or the other with it, just because there needs to be something. Because people, are, you know, that are selling content need to have some way of doing it. And if there's a standard way of doing it, that's way better than putting it behind paywall or, you know, some type of proprietary software that, you know, now you have to download the special software. You know, it's just like when we had, you know, you couldn't play, uh, you know, Netflix from from any web browser in Linux for a long time unless you faked the user agent. You know, they, they right. finally got through all of that and we... You know, what was the other, they used Silverlight for a while, right? And you couldn't use Silverlight in Linux. And, you know, at least now we're to the point where you can go on Netflix and consume that content from any device virtually now with little to no problem. And it would be nice if all the vendors basically did the same thing and had some sort of, you know, standard in which they follow that allows you to access this. I mean, a standard in most cases is more open than, you know, complete proprietary drm so you know (laughs) that's why i'm like i I can't really i can't really go either way i can't support the eff and i can't really disagree with them because they they sort of had to make the stance that they made yeah absolutely and it's kind of interesting i didn't read this article but i did read a different article which i'm going to have to put in the in the etherpad and and include the show notes later (laughs) let me just read the the initial part of this because it kind of goes along what we're talking about here The question is, does copyright infringement negatively affect legal sales? This is a fundamental question with profound implications on the way copyright and copyright enforcement policies should work. In January 2014, the European Commission awarded the Dutch company Ecorus a contract worth 360 million euros to conduct a study on the question. 
The 300-page study was delivered to the commission on May 25th, but was never published until today. Uh, this this is uh, today, like in 2017. I've managed to get access to the copy, estimating displacement rates of copyrighted content in the EU. The study's conclusion, with the exception of recently released blockbusters, there is no evidence to support the idea that online copyright infringement displaces sales. While this result is not unique, but consistent with previous studies, it begs the question, why did the commission, after, after having spent a significant amount of money on it, choose not to publish it for two years? It's an interesting <laughs> it's, little it's addendum. It's a narrative, right? What's that? <laughs> it's all the optics. It's it's how it looks. It's a, it doesn't it doesn't fit their narrative of of what the you know either the vendors are paying for them to say <laughs> or uh, you know what they believe. Right, but it also goes back to the question of the W three C and the whole idea of DRM, which is to protect the content producer. But it seems like. With reports like this, and this is certainly not the first one, and certainly not the only one to come to this conclusion, that it doesn't help at all. It's a tangled web we weave, I guess. But <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, for sure. So let me get back to the Etherpad, and we can talk about uh, this tool that I found out also about today called TTYD. There was a project of, you know, a little while back called GoTTY, and what this does is actually leverage a couple of technologies uh, xterm.js, which is a JavaScript module, obviously, and a few other things, and allows you to present a local terminal on a web browser or via a web, you know, HTTP-enabled port. And you can specify the port that you choose. You can specify SSL. If you put this on a web server that allows authentication, you can make it secure and all of that. But it's uh, kind of a nice technology and an easy way to punch a simple connection through a firewall on a port that's not necessarily SSH port to give you access to a shell. And it also allows you to do things like specify the commands that are available, specify the users that can use it and everything. And I just thought it was kind of a neat tool that people might use or have some use for. Plus, since it's web, you know, HTTP, you can embed it in other things. You can create an iframe uh, or whatever, so you can have a terminal connected to a web app or something like that. Uh, the project is called TTYD. Uh, it's hosted on GitHub, of course, where everything good is. You can go ahead and download that, and I did that today. I built it from source. It took about two and a half seconds, and I had a working terminal via a web browser. So uh, very cool uh, documentation is sparse but accurate. There's really not a whole bunch to it. You just uh, install the dependencies, do a CMake, and you're up and ready to go. Uh, and you can even have it set up for like one-time operation uh, and things like that. Might be a useful tool for somebody. I can see a few things that I could use it for. If this is something you think you might need, check out TTYD over on GitHub. Link, of course, will be in the show notes. Do you run uh, SSH on uh, standard ports? I do, actually. Ah, well, I normally don't. Well, I do not I do in the sense that they're the normal ports behind the firewall. In front of the firewall, they're not. Okay, yeah, that's why yeah, the public side is normally... I always yeah, it's, it's moved up. Yes, that's yeah. true. I do the same as well. It gets rid of the generic bullcrap port attacks, <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> Security by obscurity, right? Yeah. So if you run SSHD on your box and it's exposed to the internet, make sure it's not listening on port twenty-two. Take some time and put it somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> yep, and it's not that hard to do at all. Moving on, we're going to talk about Linux in the ham shack, and uh, we're going to skip into some more GitHubbing because we've been GitHubbing. Slash oh yes, we Git always GitHub in the ham shack. That's, right. <laughs> that's where we can find there. the latest, greatest of everything that's out there. Right. And uh, the first thing I ran into was, uh, of course, GitHub Desktop 1.0 was released. And I was looking at it. Of course, it's an Electron application. I was just tossing this out here. Do you think these are good or evil to have, you know, this, this these Electron applications? They've actually got some flack lately because they are, you know, virtually running um, in an instance of, of Chrome, <laughs> you know, via the, I believe the WebKit actually runs part of this. And some people were having issues with memory usage and stuff like that. You know, I think Slack got a, a really bad... Uh, a bad rap with it because that's how Slack is uh, sent out to every single device you know, without actually, you know, doing much, uh, you know, much programming. Basically, this provides like a Node.js server that can, uh, you know, deploy your application on any device. But in general, it provides kind of a layer of obscurity to that OS to allow you to drive your application. And uh, yeah, I just don't know. I don't I don't have a have you have you messed around with it at all to make a call on it? 
No, not enough to make a call on it, but if I were to answer in a tongue-in-cheek way, I would say that the description of the project or the description of the framework actually includes the words Node.js, which immediately says it sucks. Cross-platform is great. Don't get me wrong about that. I mean, the idea behind that is wonderful. But when you talk about putting anything on top of Node.js, I have a hard time enjoying it because I just have such trouble with Node.js, and I wish it wasn't quite as difficult to get around in i guess it's one of those things where it creates the framework and gives you the presentation layer for all these applications that you want to use and in and of itself it's a very powerful tool but unless you know it you're just kind of hoping that it works in the same way that your windows desktop is you know as long as it's working it's cool and with these technologies they're wonderful and i would love to know everything about them but there's only so much time in the universe right and we only have a small slice of it and yeah. But, All right. Well, I just I was just wondering. I'm I'm actually playing with Ember right now. So, and I was looking at the Ember hooks to uh, put it inside of a, a Electron to make it a standalone app. So, as I play with it, I, I might mention more about it. So, on to KFH log. This is a Python pyramid and SQL alchemy uh, setup. Yeah, what could go wrong with that? Uh, I've, used, uh, <laughs> I've used Python and SQL Alchemy for stuff, and I, I did play around with Pyramid for a while. Not my favorite framework, but it, it is a framework, you know, another Flask or Django or some kind of middleware between an ORM and uh, and the language. But it's a it's a young web-based logger. It's looking pretty good. This is written by Camille uh, or Camel, probably Camille, um, SQ8KFH. And uh, it looks pretty slick. It's it's another one of these uh, web loggers like CloudLog and Cloud uh, Shack. Shack and all this other stuff. I don't see any hooks for uh, using it with a directly connected uh, rig. Uh, at least I didn't see anything uh, specifically for it. But um, who knows? It looks like it could go pretty far. Uh, so far, it looks it looks pretty clean. Um, there's uh, several features that appear to be working. And uh, you can check it out on GitHub and follow along because it's uh, it's it's being actively developed by uh, by SQ8KFH. So uh, check that out. Uh, it w- wouldn't take t- that much to integrate a local rig because there are Python bindings for Hamlibs. So I mean, oh yeah, 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 yeah it would be really quick. Yeah. yeah. So uh, we also saw TNC server. So this project is a multiplexing network server for KISS-enabled amateur radio packet node or terminal node controllers, TNCs. It provides a way to share a TNC amongst uh, multiple read-write, read-only, and write-only clients. Chris Nell provides a cross-platform TNC server for packet under the ever-great do-what-the-badger-you-want-to-do public license. (laughs) I just thought that was funny. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, check that out. And if you're, uh, I just had someone asking me, uh, I went to the club meeting just randomly because uh, we're doing a, a Jamboree on the Air event. And I actually had somebody come up and ask me, have you ever messed with TNCs and uh, have run a, a Digipeter? And I'm like, yeah, probably back in the 90s. <laughs> I haven't <laughs> messed with TNCs in a long time. And I sold my uh, my last TNC, which was a KPC3, at uh, Tarkfest in, uh, in Tampa back in like 20, you know, 2004 or something like that. I'm like, what am I ever going to do with this packet controller? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I said it looks, it's pretty much, you know, it's dead simple to do digipeters. But uh, I thought it was interesting that I ran into this thing uh, slightly after that conversation. So if you're into doing TNC stuff and you want to do it from uh, Linux or uh, I believe uh, any uh, operating system, I, I forget which language this one's written in, it does have a do whatever you want license on it. This is all stuff that's been worked on with the last week of this recording. So this is all active development going on. And we also have Jamtenna. This follows in a long line of stuff that actually isn't programming or isn't software. This is hardware. This is ham radio antenna repository for this author's uh, amateur radio designs of antennas that he builds and uh, plays around with. And he provides uh, all the 3D parts files for building your own uh, building your own uh, antenna from those designs in SolidWorks and STL ready to print. So uh, everything, uh, all of his notes are written down in the report files and it's inside of this repository. So uh, you can search up Jamtenna or catch our link in the show notes. All right, very good. So uh, I'm going to take a look at a couple of those projects. The uh, SQ8KFH project looks interesting. I'm I'm really interested in web-based loggers, so I want to take a little further, you know, dive into that one. But I would like to ask 
in the future, developers of ham radio applications not name the damn application again after the last three letters of their call sign because <laughs> uh, it's just it's ridiculous. Find a good name, you know, because uh, you know we got CQR log and KFH log, and uh, there's there's other ones. Yeah, but that, that's not his call sign anymore. <laughs> well, not anymore, but it obviously was when he started out. Oh, there's YFK and yeah, yep, yeah, they're all out there. So. Well, it's easy to locate the author at that point, right? It uh, does give a little bit of identification. And, uh, you know, what else are you going to call a logger? You can't call it ham log that's taken or ham radio deluxe. Oh, wait, never mind. <laughs> I don't know. A little creativity goes a long way. I mean, you're a developer, so you've got some creativity built in. Oh, you got like PyLog, right? That's it's, it's named after Python. It's a well, Python logger. That's true. So and you got Tuknak. What the heck is that? <laughs> oh, you weren't around for the, for the, uh, the explanation of that? Yes, we talked about that already. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's a there's a unique unique name for a logger. That's true. Until you realize it actually means penguin in Polish, but I mean or Czech or whatever <laughs> whatever the language was. So uh, I actually didn't put it in the Etherpad here, but uh, I'll talk a little bit about it. We did talk about on episode number 176 back in December of last year, a distribution called Antergos. What it is, is a distribution that makes Arch accessible to the masses. Arch Linux is a pretty powerful Linux distribution. It does a lot of stuff based on source code rather than prepackaged binaries. Uh, it's always bleeding edge, and it's uh, rolling release. But the biggest problem with things like Arch is they generally are hard to install, and you actually have to know a little bit about things to get things rolling. Uh, same with stuff like Gentoo. But that learning curve makes things more powerful and uh, tends to streamline things because the packages are actually installed by source builds, uh, which makes them more streamlined and fine-tuned for your actual computer environment rather than just having every imaginable library built into the system just so it will run regardless of your architecture and the resources that are accessible to you. So some distributions have come out to make it easier to use things like Arch, and Antergos is one of those things. Bill, you installed it for yourself. You tried it out. You gave it, the last I recall, a readiness score of 2.6, which is pretty low on our scale. I think Manjaro was a little bit a little bit easier to get going. Okay, so I installed Antergos today, and um, I did it because I was looking around for a Linux podcast client that I could use for downloading some new shows and listening to some new content, and I found a great one called Vocal. The problem with Vocal is that it was written for the Enlightenment desktop environment, I believe, the distribution that Enlightenment was written for, whatever it is. Uh, I can't think of it right now. So, <laughs> uh, But anyway, so I tried to install Vocal from source code using my Debian machine, and that was a total nightmare because it requires dependencies that are not available uh, for Debian because they are only in like Ubuntu repositories, things like Granite. Um, so it would have required a whole mess of actual source building stuff. Uh, that I think there were like six or seven different requirements that I couldn't, you know, install from packages. So it would have been a you know, horrendous amount of uh, source building and stuff to get just this podcast client working. They didn't feel like doing that, so the easier thing to do was just install Arch, which Vocal is already uh, in the AURs for, and uh, I figured I would try Antergos because that's supposed to make using Arch easy, and I was doing it in the VM environment and all that. It turns out that Antergos is very easy. Uh, it's excellent, in fact. Uh, the installer is pretty much as easy to use as any of the Debian ones I've tried lately. Very slick and streamlined. The interface is beautiful. It gives you the option of using six different desktop environments during the install process, whether you choose the full ISO download or the minimal one. Uh, I chose the minimal uh, and downloaded the packages afterwards. It took a little while because I was using a VM. But then after doing that, it allows you to enable AURs and certain services right up front. Gives you the options to just pick and choose what you like. And, and really handholds you through the process. So getting Arch up and running using Antergos, at least now, I don't know how it was a year ago, but, but as of today, uh, it's very, very easy. I had it all up and, and working. Uh, I used the software manager to install, you know, FL Digi and GPredict and CQR log and, of course, Vocal. 
They were all built from source using the AURs. They all built perfectly. They all run perfectly, uh, including the SQL database backend. So no problem there. I actually enjoyed this. I enjoyed it enough that I might actually consider putting it on some bare metal and running it in my shack. Nice. I don't think it's quite as polished on the ham radio front as some of the distributions that already have those packages assembled for them, like Debian, Ubuntu, and SUSE. But considering that it's Arch, and Arch is normally one of those distributions we don't recommend because a user coming in from a newbie perspective generally has a hard time with things like Arch Linux. But I would start recommending Antergos, and I would give it a rating, you know, in the low fours. I think it's it's really come up lately. So, yeah. uh, well, I mean, the AUR package system is just is, is amazing. There's there's tons of stuff out there, and you get to take advantage of the people that have already built uh, build files to uh, compile all this stuff for your uh, your Arch system. So, I think the problem with uh, Antergos that I ran into a year ago was was basically I had installed it. I'd ran the updater and the updater broke the system. (laughs) Then I reinstalled it and then it worked for a little while. And then it broke like a week later when I updated it again. Yeah. I kind of got, I kind of got dismayed after that. And then I, uh, I jumped ship and I think the next episode I did Manjaro, (laughs) which worked much better, but I ended up crapping that system out as well, basically because of the same issue, you know, an update basically, you know, you know, stabbed me in the back. And that's, that's the one, one, problem with maybe it was my fault by being too uh update happy you know oh there's an update available you know as soon as you start adding aur packages to those systems you know you're going to get updates anytime someone you know ticks a ticks an update on the aur package and it might not necessarily be needed you know it could be a comment or something like that and then uh <laughs> and then right yeah yeah you're in bad news and i i highly uh highly would like to dissuade you from grabbing an AUR package that's tied to a GitHub uh, repository because, uh, you know, there are too many changes happening in GitHub repositories that you do not need to uh, <laughs> be attached to. So if you do try Antergos or Manjaro, any Arch system, be very careful about, about adding packages that say Git on it. <laughs> G-I-T. Right. Stay away. Uh, you know, th- those could be daily updates. And, well, they uh, could they, be... They, by the minute updates because i mean those are updated as github and commits can be as little as like changes in characters and stuff oh yeah yeah spacing tab spaces you know it could be could be anything and the problem with that is is that you know there's not really any uh any coverage for testing on those builds so (laughs) you could be loading a, a really bad build and it could also affect everything else in the system Buyer beware on that. Yes, and they are explicitly uh, marked with a dash git, so they're they're easy to see if you're searching through yes. the software installer. So uh, just be aware of that. And when I was looking up vocal, for example, there's a vocal and a vocal dash git, and it tells you what version the the actual release version is, the one without the dash git, uh, which is usually several revs back. Which is you know that's okay because at least you know it's going to be relatively stable compared to the one that's being committed on, like as you install it. So. Uh, yeah. Definitely. Have you run Gpotter? I have run Gpotter, but if you haven't seen Vocal, you should look at it. It's super slick looking, and I do like the eye candy. Oh, well, I'll, I'll have to take a look at it. I mean, I've been my go-to has been Gpotter because it works pretty much everywhere. I actually have it on the Mac here, and I, I have it in Linux, and, and I, I, I like it a lot, you know, because I can... I still play all my files with VLC, and I, you know, hijack the command line to automatically play them at, you know, whatever, one and a half speed, and then exit out of uh, vlc after it's done playing so it's uh, i find it a very convenient to use that what type of uh hooks to uh playing does does uh vocal have or do they have a built-in uh player uh it has a built-in player and i and i don't know that much about it because i literally just got the install done right before the show so i haven't really had a chance to play with it i've only seen it and i just know that it looks awesome so <laughs> It, it could it could be just terrible. I don't know, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I just wonder what kind of backend it's using because obviously it probably is not using GStreamer or something like that. Uh, actually, I believe GStreamer was one of the dependencies. So, oh, well, maybe it is using that as a backend then. AV Codec and GStreamer, and there were several other things. Um, like I said, that were that were part of the build process. So, uh, again, don't know that much about it. Just it looks great, and I hope it works great. Cool. Plus, it got me to to use Arch Linux. So, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, it'll be running for at least a week. Uh, yeah, exactly. 
I was Googling uh, Enlightenment, and the only current system I could see with it is Bodhi, or at least uh, a few years ago, Bodhi uh, came with Enlightenment 17. Maybe it wasn't Enlightenment. Hang on, let me look it up. It's uh, this, The website is vocalproject.net. Designed for elementary OS. Elementary, so that's what it was. Sorry. Yes. So that's Pantheon. So elementary OS is an eye candy version of Gen- of uh, Ubuntu. So <laughs> right. the Pantheon system, which you can install in Arch and a bunch of other systems now by uh, looking for the Pantheon packages. Yeah, it's a really slick, uh, slick looking system. I-, I used to be my favorite. I used to install elementary on everything. Yeah, so it was originally built for elementary, and trying to build it on Debian is a no-go. It does run on Ubuntu, and of course in Arch, as we've already said. Yeah. All right, cool. So those are our topics for the night, and I don't see a whole lot of activity in the chat room, so we'll just jump on over to the music for tonight, and we're going to play a track by Jonathan Colton off his latest release. This is an album that... uh, He had been performing some of the songs from as early as late in 2016, and the actual album came out in April of 2017, and we actually attended the show that he did in Chicago on the night that the album was released, so that was cool. So this is one of the tracks off of it. The the album is called Solid State, uh, Jonathan Colton, of course, the artist, and the track is called Sunshine. Uh, This runs about 4 minutes 30 seconds. Jonathan Colton lives in Brooklyn, New York. That's where he does all of his work from. A link to the album, of course, will be in the show notes. And we'll go ahead and play this. Sunshine by Jonathan Colton. We were blind to every sign That we should have seen In a clear, unbroken line Machine to machine, our mistakes were the future, but no one could tell. Long on Bitcoin and regret, with not much to show, the roaches took the kitchenette. We just let it go, walked away as the skyline crumbled and fell. We could have stayed inside the city the machines had made. But we took our time Here in the sunshine Cast a shadow on the world that's gone
So that was Sunshine by Jonathan Colton from his latest release, Solid State, from back in April of this year. Yeah, some pretty good stuff on there. It actually has an accompanying graphic novel that tells the story. Well, the music tells the story of the novel, or the novel tells the story of the music, whatever. They go together, so kind of cool. Yeah. You expect any less out of Jonathan? (laughs) (laughs) He he does have his uh, idiosyncrasies, for sure. Yes, he does. Very creative. Talk, talk about computer programmer turned musician. So. Yep, there you go. All right. Yeah, so anytime got, you can put Bitcoin in uh, the lyrics of a song. Yeah. <laughs> we have a voicemail. Ooh. Ooh. So here we have a voicemail. It's our only feedback for this week. Uh, we don't have any announcements that I can think of. So here we go. Feedback. It's from a familiar voice. Hey, Cheryl and Russ and Bill. Uh, thank you for all the shows you do. Hey, I was wondering, it's Rich, KD0RG. I was wondering, you're going to be on hiatus for a while, and I thought I could do a little mini-series, if you're interested, entitled BSD in the Ham Shack. And I'd start at the beginning, installing BSD, seeing what's available, and seeing if I could get it running. So it would kind of be a, uh, not a tutorial, but, uh, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is. Let me know if you're interested. I think it would be kind of fun, and it would fill up uh, fill up the time. I could do a show every two weeks or something like that. All right. Um, I think you probably still have my number. I lost yours. <laughs> anyway, talk to you later. Bye. <laughs> well, he obviously didn't lose all of the numbers because he called the voicemail line. Yeah, so. he still has the one. <laughs> he so. still has the one. Yep. So, uh, I, well, isn't 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 using Mac OS the same as using BSD? <laughs> Uh, kind of in the same way that, uh, Android is Linux. So yeah, yeah, very, very similar. <laughs> um, sort of. Yeah. So anyway, uh, you guys hadn't heard that voicemail before now. So what do you think? BSD in the ham shack, a little, uh, like mini podcast inside a podcast from rich. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't sound too bad. Uh, it, it, I would be interested in, in, in listening to it for sure. I know I've tried BSD uh, multiple times. I remember when uh, dragonfly came out kind of a flavor of BSD and, uh, I played around with that quite a bit, but I did, uh, I did struggle when it came to actually, uh, getting, uh, amateur radio software on there. So I, I kind of lost, uh, lost hope. And I think we also showed, um, I think it was what PC BSD or whatever that became pure OS or something like that. Yeah. Uh, not too long ago, uh, maybe about like, I don't know, five or six episodes ago, we, we talked about that and, and that ended up with a pretty, uh, pretty low score just because a, it was ugly <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and B it was, it was, it was a, a bit, uh, a bit of a complication, uh, getting stuff on there. And I think that's where, that's where it kind of loses users that are not as sophisticated or adept at, uh, you know, building their own software and building their own packages, you know, you know, where like the AUR system makes it really easy. I think the uh, portage system or whatever they're using nowadays, uh, there's just, there doesn't seem to be quite, quite the same community. I know there's stuff out there because I know people are using BSD and uh, there's nothing wrong with it. I mean, I think my web server that I'm using is running BSD. So (laughs) it, it does work and it works very well. Uh, for for certain things, I've just never had any success with it in on desktop, and I would I would be interested in in hearing about it. Yeah, I'd be interested in hearing about it too. So I think we'll give uh, Rich a thumbs up, and I'll let him know, and we'll uh, I'll talk it out with him and see what he has in mind. And uh, so while we're on hiatus, uh, there may be a fill in for us, which would be kind of cool. Ooh. So yeah, <laughs> we'll give that a try. And I've uh, I've run BSD for a couple of things. Um, I run a muck which <laughs> i don't know if we want to go into all yeah, of that no, but... let's not go into that whole explanation <laughs> for those that don't know what it is <laughs> yeah. all right so anyway if you know what a muck is great um you know kudos brownie points to you if you don't um i guess you can google for it uh but anyway that is still running on NetBSD, and then i had a couple of nas boxes that were running on FreeBSD. Uh, but I actually switched those over to the Linux version. So, uh, yeah, I'm still running BSD, too. And, of course, BSD with Aqua is macOS. So there you go. Uh, anyway, 
let's move on and we can talk about some food we can talk about for example the food we just ate so tonight i decided to fix some stuffed pork chops for dinner and russ voted that that was the recipe for this evening so for this little experiment in the kitchen i used eight ounces of cream cheese some black pepper garlic powder crushed dried rosemary some chopped roasted red peppers some chopped mushrooms some mozzarella cheese and i also used parmesan in mine uh this specific recipe calls for bacon but i left the bacon out because i was being lazy four boneless pork chops salt pepper flour eggs breadcrumbs some more shredded parmesan and some canola oil and you mix the cream cheese and any spices that you want to throw in it and you know the roasted red peppers and the mushrooms and the cheese mix all that together and stuff your you know butterfly your pork chops and stuff those and sprinkle them with salt and pepper and stick them in the refrigerator for a little while to firm the cheese back up so it doesn't gush out pull them out of the fridge sprinkle some olive oil on them dip them in flour then dip them in some beaten eggs and then uh, smush some breadcrumbs all over them and add some shredded parmesan to your breadcrumbs and then fry them for a few seconds on each side in canola oil and then stick them in the oven and finish cooking them in there so what's your vote on the pork chops oh the pork chops were excellent i definitely think we should do those again okay so. yeah it's a very forgiving recipe you can add some spinach you can leave out the mushrooms you can add some sauteed onions you know use cheddar instead of mozzarella you know use thyme instead of rosemary so, you know it's it's a very forgiving recipe great for you experimentation get like, uh, thick cuts of uh, pork chops or is this for like uh, thin ones too no, the, the pork chops that i used tonight because i i butterflied them you can buy them pre-butterflied but i butterflied my own so they were probably eh, close to an inch thick so, oh, okay. so pretty yeah. decent size so, ones. yeah pretty decent size pork chops so Yep. So probably in the uh, butcher's case, you'll find those. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so definitely give those a try. Thumbs up for me. They're very tasty. So I'm going to do a quick whiskey corner. And uh, this time we're not doing scotch. We're doing bourbon. And the reason we're doing bourbon is because uh, I took a trip with Cheryl back home while we were in New Hampshire. I found at the liquor store a bourbon made in New Hampshire. And uh, it's actually made in Lee, New Hampshire, which is about 20 miles from where my parents live. So I figured, what the hell, I'll give this a try. They are also a winery, so they make several different wines. The distillery slash winery is called Flag Hill. The only thing that might be unfortunate for you is this is if this is really good, you probably won't be able to find it unless you actually go to New Hampshire to get it. But anyway, I, uh, I have not tried it yet. I did open the bottle a few minutes ago, and I've poured it into my Glencairn glass over here. Uh, there's a couple of interesting things about this uh, whiskey without even smelling it or tasting it. This is a small batch straight bourbon whiskey. Proof on it is 90, so that's 45%. They age it in batches of six barrels, and this was from batch number four. They age it two years. There's not a lot of this whiskey out there. And what's kind of cool is on the side of the bottle, they actually put the mash bill. It is 71% corn, 15% barley, and 14% rye. It's a really cool looking bottle. I picked it up for $39.99. Not too extravagant for a small batch bourbon. And uh, it's, a, it's a really nice uh, golden caramel color. All of that from not even sniffing it. Uh, I expect this to not be terribly complex because it's pretty young, but I'm gonna, I've got it in my glass here, so let me take a quick sniff. It's, uh, it's pretty high in the alcohol, of course, because it's 90 proof. You definitely can smell the rye in it. Uh, you can smell the uh, oak char, and the rest of it is kind of like alcohol and uh, caramel. That, that's pretty much it. <laughs> I mean, there's really not much there. It smells like alcohol. Very complex. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you got so you got oak char, rye, caramel, and boost. Yep, that's what you got. Gotcha. At least it. on the nose, anyway. So uh, let's try it here. The taste is much different than the nose. You still get the caramel, but the the rye is really forward. Even though it's not a high percentage of the mash bill, it's really in there. It gives you that sort of dry grass taste, and I actually get a little tobacco. It's almost like uh, burley, and I realize that the whiskey has barley, but I'm talking about burley, which is tobacco. It has a taste like that, and then uh, caramel, and something that's almost a little floral, maybe. 
um, again, like a dried flower, like a potpourri, almost not fragrant. Um, but the, the idea of dried, dried grasses, dried flower, burly tobacco, caramel, not a lot of, not a lot of flavors, but actually if you like something that's got a little bit of a rye taste, you know, it leans toward rye, but it's not actually rye whiskey. Um, this will be right up your alley. And while it has a pretty heavy alcohol hit to the nose, you don't get that in the taste. So you could easily just sit and sip this even at 90 proof without any trouble at all. All things considered, not too bad at all. I'm going to enjoy that bottle. Giving it a rating on the 100 point scale, I'm going to put it at an 86, which is uh, pretty high and uh, really high actually for a not particularly complex uh, young age whiskey. But uh, I do like it quite a bit. So if you can get your hands on a bottle of Flag Hill bourbon, you might want to give it a try. It's probably worth it. All right. We're going to move on to the social media roundup. Okay. So this week for subscriptions, we have Dylan Engel, Stephen Saner, Thor Wiegman, Wayne Carpenter, Ronald Ike, Paul Griffith, Robert Halliday, Bill Piotr, Darren King, Charlie Brown, Brian Smith, Johnny Kinsey, Kevin Murray, James Blocker, Stephen Harp, John Fotchke, Donald Gover, Robert Doherty, Jeremy Hall, Michael Connolly, Christopher Weaver, John Clark, Todd Bowers, Doug Rutter, Michael Aelo, Michael Jacobs, Jonas Rulo, Robert Yerke, Alan Wilson, and Robert Pitts. No one joined us on Facebook this week. On Google Plus, we have Eric Reinhardt, Mark Crowley, and Richard Morton. On Twitter, we have KG4UJD, K6EAG, O-N-U-R-S-O-Y-C-O-M, Frank M. Howell and Gundo. YouTube is Dennis Plowman. The mailing list is KA7HVT. And there were no merchandise sales this week. All right, I think that's it. The chat room looks pretty quiet. I think we're down to the bottom of episode number 199, which means the very next one is episode 200. So we're going to celebrate 200 episodes of the program. Uh, we'll be recording that on October 2nd of this year. And then it sounds like we're going to have some BSD talk for uh, three months or so while we uh, retool Linux in the ham shack. Uh, hope we can catch all of you out there for the next episode, episode 200. There's sure to be some surprises and, uh, you know, we'll give more details as the time for that approaches. So with that, I guess I'm going to go ahead and push the outro button, which means I have to go over here and do this. And there's some music. So you can become an LHS ambassador. Visit the website for upcoming events and information on how you can represent Linux in the Ham Shack at a nearby LinuxCon or HamFest. We love feedback. You can email us at info at lhspodcast.info, comment on an episode on the website, post on Google+, Facebook, or Twitter, or leave a voicemail at 1909-LHS-SHOW. That's 1909-547-7469. Visit our IRC channel, Octothorpe LHS Podcast, on Freenode, and subscribe to our mailing list. Show merchandise from coffee mugs to t-shirts to wall clocks and lots of other stuff can be purchased at www.cafepress.com stroke Podcast. You can also help the show by clicking on the sponsored ads in the right-hand column of the homepage. Listen live every other Monday night at 8 o'clock Central Time. That's early Tuesday morning at 0100 Zulu in the summertime and 0200 Zulu in the winter. Our recording schedule and countdown timer to the next episode are on the website. Please visit lhspodcast.info for everything you ever wanted to know about the show. Thank you to all of our listeners, live and quasi-live, past, present, and future, and to those who have given their time, ears, shares, money, and spend time in the chat room with us. We appreciate each and every one of you. So with that, we're going to wrap up this episode, number 199 of Linux in the Ham Shack. I'm Russ, K5TUX. That's Cheryl, W5MOO. Good night, everyone. And there's, he's got frost in his shorts, Bill, NE4RD. 73, everyone. <laughs> we'll catch you in two weeks' time. Take care, everybody.
Bring more vodka.